Well, I'd like to welcome all of you to this opening of the 29th three-month retreat. It's always quite amazing as the numbers keep creeping up each year. It's really quite an extraordinary happening. By way of beginning, I'd like to introduce the various teachers um, and people who will be helping in the retreat, some of whom you've met already and some perhaps not. Start all the way at the far end and maybe those who are sitting on the floor could just stand up for a moment. On my far left is Annie Nugent and she is the resident teacher, one of the two resident teachers uh, for the staff at IMS and uh, she will be helping out in a supportive role and uh, maybe giving some of the talks uh, on Saturday nights when we usually play a tape. So that will be a very nice offering. Next to her, of course, is Michelle McDonald, who you heard last night. She, <laughs> she of the pink hair. <laughs> and Stephen Smith on the platform. Susan O'Brien. I'm Joseph Goldstein. Miyoshin Kelly, Damaruan, who is a, in our teacher training program from Sri Lanka, and he will be here just for two weeks, uh, but in that time he will uh, lead the chanting in the evening, and it's extraordinarily beautiful, so it's, it's a real treat. And on my far right is Patricia Genoux, who will be assisting us during the retreat and teaching. And I'd like to introduce Martina Schneider. She's standing up in the back. Martina is here as a support person for the retreat, uh, helping particularly as the night contact person uh, for any emergencies, medical or psychological that might happen uh, at night, and I think the room she's in is posted on the board. She will also be of some support uh, when it's needed during uh, the day in, in helping yogis. So you're well supported in this journey. It's really been nice just to watch how our understanding of what's needed to create this place of safety and support has evolved over these last 29 years. Uh, so we've learned a little bit how to do this. Coming together on a retreat, particularly six week or three months, to practice the Dharma is always a very special time, an extraordinarily precious time. And you might have had the sense, just in these last two, two days, it feels in a way like the gathering in of family, you know, really deep connections, even for people who are meeting one another for the first time. There's some very powerful and strong common bond that brings us all together <clears throat> for this for this practice. Now in this, <clears throat> in this troubled and often crazy world, we really create here a place of refuge. A group of people coming together, sharing the highest values, the highest values of awakening, of compassionate action in the world, of freedom. So the work we do here together is about freeing the mind from greed, freeing the mind from hatred, freeing the mind from ignorance. You know, and all of these are the forces that cause so much suffering, both in our own lives and in the world. But Dharma practice, in 
the deepest possible way opens us to the possibility of genuine happiness. Sometimes I think of it as the master game of life because it is the investigation of life itself. It explores precisely and deeply what it is that we call self. What is this phenomenon that we call self, that we call I? What is the nature of consciousness itself? What is the nature of awareness? It's quite amazing for 95, 100 people to be gathered here for this purpose. Now, it's not a common occurrence in this world. In beginning the retreat, we are really settling in to a very different landscape. We're settling into a land of silence, settling into a land of depth, settling into a land of solitude, where there is a tremendous immediacy of experience. Now, because we don't have many distractions or diversions here. It's a land where we come face to face with ourselves. And the great gift of this is not only that we come to understand ourselves better, we become more intimately connected with each other. The poet Rumi had some wonderful lines about the power of this kind of practice. He said, which is worth more, a crowd of thousands or your own genuine solitude? Freedom or power over an entire nation? A little while alone in your room will prove more valuable than anything else that could ever be given you. It's a powerful statement about the value of understanding. Now, most of you are experienced yogis, and you know very well that this path of awakening, this journey of awakening, is not an easy task. It's not an easy journey. There are very strong habits in the mind, very strong habit patterns of desire, of wanting, of aversion, of judging, of comparing, of doubting, of hopes and fears. So all of these are going to arise. It takes a very strong commitment. It's almost like we need a fire within us, a certain passion, to stay awake, to stay aware through all the many ups and downs of practice. Now, as you well know, sometimes our experience is pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. At times we're calm, we're concentrated, we feel peaceful. And at times there's restlessness, there's boredom, there's discouragement. And it's all part of the journey. A quality of mind that for me has been a tremendous support over all these years of practice. I think it's the the one quality which more than any other has kept me going through the ups and downs. And that is the quality of interest. It's that interest or willingness to see into my own mind to come to some understanding. There's a 11th century, I believe, Japanese poet, a woman named Izumi. She wrote, The moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, 
no part left out. That's a beautiful expression of our practice. Coming to know ourselves completely, no part left out. It's the feeling that we have, or the intention that whatever arises, whether it's pleasant, whether it's unpleasant, whether it's difficult, whether it's easy, that whatever arises, it's that willingness to see it, to understand it. Now, for so many years early on, struggled with my practice, struggled with the difficulties, you know, with all the comparing, judging thoughts, thinking I was a bad yogi and my practice was no good. But a big change, and this, this was a transformative change as the Dharma journey unfolded, happened when I realized that difficulties in the practice are not a mistake. They're not a problem. They are themselves part of the path. I'd just like to repeat that. <laughs> Difficulties, <laughs> problems, <laughs> downtimes are not mistakes. They're not problems. They are part of the path. And there was a very big turning point when I stopped judging myself for all these things arising and I actually had that interest, even a kind of joy, in seeing it because I came to understand that I would rather see these difficulties than not see them, than simply be acting them out unconsciously. So as we enter into this long journey, it's very helpful to reflect on this and to remember this. It's all part of the path. Now, although we often speak of the great heroic effort that is needed in this journey of the Dharma, and the Buddha spoke often of this, the heroic effort needed to awaken from the dreamlike states of our delusion and of our ignorance. We can also understand the path from another perspective and understand it as the path of a, a deep surrender that is an opening to just what there is, moment after moment. One time early on in my practice, I started to appreciate the value of this quality of surrender. And I would start each day, and sometimes each sitting, with the simple statement, I surrender to the Dharma. I just surrender to the truth of what will arise. And it was a tremendous help. As we practice the surrender to the unfolding process of our minds and bodies, at a certain point, we also learn to deeply trust it. Like we're carried by the Dharma. Now, you have either heard in the introduction, the orientation, or over the next days, the importance of slowing down, of avoiding eye contact, really being seamless in your practice. People sometimes interpret these suggestions as meaning the practice is grim. You know, and so what they end up doing is practicing grimness. It's really important to understand, and this takes a great discriminating wisdom, to understand the difference between mindfulness and grimness. They're two very different things. We can be very inward very still, not having contact, and maybe not having a big grin on our face, and having a tremendous lightness of heart and ease of heart in doing that. 
one Burmese monk who was not Upandita said, work hard and have fun. So I think that's the quality. We want that quality, if not fun, at least interest and a certain quality of Dharma joy. It's important to remember that we are not practicing to get something. We're practicing letting go. We're not practicing to get something. We're practicing letting go. Letting go of grasping, letting go of clinging. So it's not what we get. The real measure of the practice will be what you leave behind. Ramana Maharshi had a wonderful line. He said, in spiritual practice, try to be less, not more. So that really changes the inner quality and it, it helps us come to that place of ease. And we stop trying to grasp at something, but the continual relinquishment. There are two attitudes of mind which very much support our practice here. I just want to touch on them briefly. The first quality that is of such tremendous help and which the Buddha talked of so often is the quality of patience. Now, as many of you have heard probably, we at one time got a letter addressed here to the Instant Meditation Society. (laughs) It's just not that way. It's not an instant process. We need a lot of patience with the understanding that it is natural and inevitable to go through endless ups and downs. There will be many swings and many cycles and you'll get to experience that intimately, especially in a retreat of this length. Sometimes you'll feel happy and exhilarated. Other times you'll be depressed and bored and wondering why you came, and it's all part of the journey. The Buddha spoke so incisively about this. In talking about patience, he said, patience leads to Nibbana. So this is not an insignificant quality of mind to cultivate. It's something to really take to heart. Patience is not the quality of stoic endurance. It's the quality of constancy. You know, so we're not gritting our teeth trying to be with things, trying to be patient, but rather it's that, that quality of being constant, const- having constancy with whatever arises. Let me be with this. Let me feel this. Let me explore this. Now, all of our experience is simply a display of changing conditions. It's like the weather patterns. There'll be lots of different weather coming through in this next three months. And don't be fooled, even when it's a great thunder and lightning storm, it's still just a display of changing conditions. So patience is first of the qualities that is this great support for us through all the ups and downs of our practice. And the second quality is that of metta, of loving kindness, which is really the very simple quality of friendliness, friendliness towards ourselves, friendliness towards others. There was an old samurai poem from Japan, and one line of which really jumped out at me. In it says, I make my mind my friend. If we did nothing else during this whole time, 
but made our minds our friend, that would be a tremendous accomplishment. So this is the quality we want to cultivate with whatever's arising. You know, it's easy, it's difficult, it's pleasant, it's unpleasant. Can we make our minds our friend? Now each week we'll be doing a guided meditation in the Brahma Vihara, starting with metta. It'll be very helpful to incorporate this attitude of friendliness into your daily practice. The most basic principle in Buddhism is that all experiences, all situations arise when the necessary conditions are, necess- are there, are present, for that situation or experience to arise. And that all of these conditions are constantly changing. So for now, we have the time, we have the energy, we have the resources, we have the commitment, we have the willingness. We have the space, we have the teachings, we have the motivation to practice. That all of these conditions have come together for us is a tremendously rare and precious event. It really is a great gift and a great blessing in our lives. It's helpful just to reflect on this so we don't take this coming together of conditions, we don't take them for granted. Because as we've seen in so many places in the world, in a day or a week, conditions can change and people's lives get turned upside down. Whether it's war or violence or natural disaster or illness, many, many things and disrupt this coming together of these very good conditions that are present. So when we reflect on the blessing of this, the preciousness of this, these good circumstances, it helps to create an inner sense of spiritual ardency, a spiritual urgency. Let me make the best use of this. Out of the silence and awareness of our practice comes deepening levels of wisdom and understanding. And it helps bring peace to ourselves. And it helps to bring a caring and compassionate heart to other beings, to the world. And even as we progress just moment after moment, mindful in each moment, grounded in the present moment, I think it's very helpful to hold the vision of larger possibilities, to hold a higher vision of what is possible, whether we call it enlightenment or we call it peace, We call it happiness. This is a path that is actually leading somewhere. It's a path that's leading to awakening. It's a path that leads us to greater freedom from the forces that cause suffering. I'd just like to close with It's a few lines from the book Mount Analog by René Domal, which is a book, it's really a metaphor of the whole spiritual journey. And I think he captures very well the interplay of being grounded in the moment and at the same time holding the vision of freedom, the vision of awakening. He said, keep your eye fixed on the way to the top, but don't forget to look right in front of you. The last step depends on the first. Don't think you've arrived just because you see the summit. 
Watch your footing. Be sure of the next step. But don't let that distract you from the highest goal, because the first step depends on the last. Well, I wish you all very well during these next weeks and months. It's really a highlight of the year. It's it's a great joy to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you, Joseph, for a beautiful introduction. I'm going to uh, continue the, the, uh, the ritual of our opening uh, by talking about and introducing and together taking the refuges and precepts. And then Susan will give instructions for our meditation tonight and lead us in, in a meditation. And I'd also like to begin by saying a little bit about gratitude, which I plan to speak more about tomorrow. Joseph mentioned all these really extraordinary qualities uh, that are so supportive and helpful in, as a foundation for our practice, like, such as interest and uh, surrender and trust and patience, loving-kindness, Balance is another one, and I think of that particularly today because it's the equinox, which means it's, it's, a, it's like we're walking the line of light and shadow, same length of night, same length of day. And in a way, that's a metaphor for our entire practice, always trying to balance uh, throughout the day, throughout each sitting or walking really in each moment. It's a balancing of these qualities uh, such as joy and, and focus and flexibility and interest in what's happening and that whatever is happening is natural. You know, if we, if we remember only two things, that the mind is a stream and whatever arises is natural, you know, then uh, affirming even more what Joseph said, that, you know, there's, there's no mistakes. Whatever comes up teaches us about the nature of ourselves, nature of things as they are, the nature of life, and leads us toward full awakening. It's customary in the beginning of the major events in Asia called the three months rains retreats to express gratitude at the beginning and many other ceremonial things like at the conclusion of major dhamma examinations and gifts given out you know for the accomplishments of people's study and whatnot and there are many ways in which to express this gratitude and it is, I add that to the list that, um, uh, of the qualities Joseph mentioned as something quite significant and supportive and nurturing of our practice. If we began every sitting you know, reflecting on the amazing fortune of being here, now how did we get here? It's so difficult, you know, to do this practice, as Joseph was saying, and so many potential obstacles, external and internal, that do not allow for this, this precious gift where we enter 
a very protected and safe place. Grow in that feeling of safety. Grow in that feeling of protectiveness so that we see deeper and deeper into our hearts. And, and, and thus the, the value of the refuges and precepts, how they add to creating this shelter of safety, this powerful community where we, we deepen our sense of fearlessness without which we cannot honestly you know, watch our experience moment to moment. So, so gratitude is, is one of them. I think it's helpful to reflect on the sequence of events that brought us here. Perhaps we owe gratitude to our family, our friends, our uh, partners, spouses, workmates, uh, numerous kinds of conditions that allowed and made the space and time and finances, whatever that was necessary uh, to come here for this length of time, six weeks or three months. very traditional to reflect on and feel gratitude for our, our very personal lineages, like our parents. You know, as complicated and as difficult as many of our personal lives have been, our parents did their very best that they knew how under their conditioning uh, to nurture us, to feed us, you know, to bring us through this world. We wouldn't be here without them and their parents, uh, a long lineage of ancestry. People we will never know anything about, but somehow a part of them lives in us and affects how we feel, how we see things, how we think about things. Even a genetic sense of lineage where there's nothing in this world that we're not connected to. There's no element, you know, psychic or physical. The sun, the water, the earth, the air that we breathe. There's, there's nothing at all that we can't be grateful for in reflecting our, our connection with this very mysterious world and the opportunity to understand it, what is the real essence of our existence, of each breath. Gratitude to our teachers. Every year, uh, Michelle and I and colleagues teach a retreat in Burma, Upper Burma. It'll be the eighth year this January. Uh, we, we call them fusion retreats because we, we bring together the long lineage of ordained Sangha, uh, that is, the, the monks and nuns soon will be teaching also with uh, nuns in Burma, and Western lay people. Uh, for many years, I, I was doing this myself, and when Michelle came to teach, and she was the first Western lay woman to teach in, in this land 2,000 years of, of Buddhist teachings being held by primarily by the ordained Sangha, east and west. You know, the, the, the combination of very classical style of teachings and presentations of the Dhamma with the contemporary ways of, of presenting the teachings to make them relevant to our lives, to our personal psyches, our emotions. So... These coming, these this, these kinds of fusion retreats, you know, bring together very seemingly stark contrasts, blend them, uh, and so I've learned how to appreciate the ways in which both of, of these combinations also bring a quality of gratitude that um, that that really fills the heart. Where have this where have these teachings mostly been held and protected? Uh, 
you know, un- until just a generation ago, 25, 27 years ago, there were not retreats like this happening in this side of the world. For 25 centuries, you know, the Dhamma was primarily traveling in Asia and held in the monasteries there with the monks and the nuns. So to, to, to reflect on and feel gratitude for one's teachers and teaching lineages. Whenever I, I come to Burma, I go to my uh, teacher of some 22 years now, Saira Upandita, express my gratitude for his help, his, his uh, teaching me the tools of navigation in, in life, how to look and understand our experience. Uh, and I did the same this year. And I, first I gave, offered a gift. It's hard to pick out an appropriate gift for an ordained person. You know, you can't just go to Macy's and you know, look through the clothes department and, well, I think you'll enjoy this kind of shirt. Or It has to be well thought out, what's considered useful, what's appropriate for... Uh, an ordained uh, nun or monk. And after all these years, you can imagine all the racking the brain, well, what will be useful now? I mean, how many radios does he need? Or how many uh, computers or flashlights or umbrellas? And you know, all the, the things that they both use by tradition and these days more innovative technologies. But he likes new and interesting things. So it's not the first time I brought him a flashlight. I brought him a flashlight. And he probably has, I've heard probably at least two dozen different Dhamma talks he can give around the gift of light. You know, it's such a metaphor for our own practice, lighting our way and the light of insight, enlightenment, seeing clearly, uh, uh, opening to the shadow, dark sides of ourselves, and so forth. So as, I, uh, as he was putting this, his, the flashlight together, which he did very carefully, very mindfully, you know, this flashlight, just like this one, never seen it before. They're new, all kinds of new flashlights they make these days. And it, it works. You can just either push a button here, you can turn it on. Plus, it's a beautiful color. I've been having fun along with Dharma Ruan this year, giving a numerous Dharma talks using the prop of flashlights. And so this I learned from my own teacher, Saira, as he put the batteries in and turned it on and then talked about the power of light and, and bringing light out of, of our hearts, and lighting the way. And the... Uh, the support, the support of each other in, in lighting the way. So I thanked him, and he said, if you thank me, you must thank my teacher, which uh, was Sairal, Mahasi Sairal, Usobana. Mahasi was one of the very great uh, teachers of the century that was one of the instrumental figures in bringing the Dhamma back out of the monasteries into the lay life. Since about the mid-1800s till now, uh, you know, every three, four hundred years, the availability of the living practice uh, disappears or withdraws, hidden away, becomes just study or just concentration meditation. So we owe a lot. Uh, and again, I'll talk more of some of the other teachers like Mahasi. He said, you have to thank Mahasi. You also have to thank Mahasi's teacher, the Mingun Jetawan Saira, who, in fact, was the innovator of many of the practices usually attributed to Mahasi and Upandita, such as rising, falling at the abdomen rather than just the Anapanasati observation at the nostrils, or using your body as an anchor, sitting and touching. Uh, and a number of other uh, you know, very useful innovations, such as, uh, and very creative ones at the time. And if you're going to thank 
the Mingun Jatawan Saira, you have to thank the Alaka Saira and the Thedan Saira, and so on and so forth, all the way back to the time of the Buddha. And each time you mention one of these Sairas, you know, they were the teacher of another Saira, the Weibu Saira, the Lady Saira. And, and soon it really covers all the traditions of, of mindfulness or insight, Satipatthana, Vipassana, uh, everywhere in the world. You know, any, any, any tradition at all somewhere connects in the, in the plexus uh, and includes everyone and everything all the way back. So I, I like to begin by personally thanking uh, uh, my teachers and, and spiritual friends, which include Joseph, from whom I first learned this Vipassana technique in 1974 in Boulder, Colorado, and from which I've never turned back. You know, kind of went on into years of study and practice in, in Asia, particularly in Burma. And I also would like to, to acknowledge a new teacher in my life the last couple of years, two or three years, um, a nun named Da Yuzana. Her tradition is a mixture of the Mingun Jetawan Saira, that's Mahasi's teacher, and the uh, Moguk Saira, another one of the uh, great Sayadas who brought out the teachings to to um, lay people again, and her teacher was a very great nun, you know, who herself had another lineage. So soon, you know, we're, we're looking at, at such a, it's like a family tree, and it all goes back. You know, we all have the same parent, uh, either eight thousand or twenty thousand or thirty thousand years ago can't go too far back, and then and we're all related. To reflect on that, I think, is one of the same kind of qualities Joseph's speaking about that helps our practice, the supports, such as interests, such as patience, such as metta. When we feel this gratitude, we feel connected to all that's come before us, like a seed you know, of an, uh, of an oak tree, an acorn. Within it is packed millions of years of some mysterious energy, all the trees that came before it. And we carry the seed of Dhamma with the, with the potential of unknown mystery into the future. So the specialness of this space and rare opportunity, as Joseph was saying, it's like we are entering very non-ordinary time and space. We are entering mythological time. You know, as the practice deepens and as form and concepts fall away, the sense of time becomes very relevant or irrelevant. And the sense of space, too, it just drops away. And we just continually finding ourselves arriving at this tremendous space of the present moment. Blessings, indeed. And so to take the refuges and take the uh, precepts together is likewise, like light, like gratitude, linking us uh, to the essence of the truth. When we take refuge in the so-called triple gem, the Buddha, Dhamma, and the Sangha, which we do in a few minutes, we'll do it three times. We're taking refuge in all that the Buddha represents, that he represented as a, as a human being, blood flowing through his veins, just like us, nervous system like ours, pains and aches, just like ours, not a god, not a supernatural being, someone with the, the paramis, the spiritual virtues and powers to find this, this middle way. Just like this day, this equinox, to walk that line between light and shadow, that line between extremes. So the Buddha may 
signify any number of things in each of us. Uh, as the figure of, of the statue, which is just material elements like our bodies, as a feeling within us, you know, as an attitude of mind, of compassion, caring, wanting to grow that within ourselves, wanting to be of greater service to the conditions that we find ourselves in in today's world, as the historical figure, whatever we may know of, of him, the very viable object of refuge. So it's a, it's a um, very, it's a significant and sincere, profound alignment to take refuge. Refuge is like home, it's like safety, it's like shelter in this Buddha metaphor, however we hold it. Dhamma is really all three refuges wrapped up in this one. Dhamma meaning truth, universal nature. Dhamma meaning our practice. We practice Dhamma. We practice the truth. Dhamma being all the instructions we hear, the guidance and the understandings as we move and touch Dhamma deeper and deeper along the way. And Sangha, meaning in the largest sense, all spiritual pilgrims, all of us traversing this path, all of us helping each other, you know, with our flashlights, with our ability to help light the way for who's next to us, who's behind us, who's in front of us. To take refuge in Sangha is to take refuge particularly in those qualified to guide us, that is, who really represents a shelter for us, who have done the work, or enough of the work, to be a qualified guide within to discover and understand the nature of our heart and mind. So, whether it's ordained sangha or lay women and men, we take refuge in, in those who have gone before us and lead us. Uh, so that's what it means to take refuge. We're aligning our consciousness, we're aligning our hearts in a way that we can you can never do too much of. It also adds to this attitude, quality that we bring to our practice. Attitude that we must often uh, revisit, connect with, understand. Because of course our attitudes color everything that follows. And how we're looking at ourselves. The precepts are are all about not harming. There's, there's um, any number of precepts we can take tonight. Uh, we'll chant uh, the precepts. Most of, of you tonight may wish to stop at the fifth precept. Uh, and that's the, these are the precepts, the obvious precepts, to create a feeling of, of safety where people need not fear, you know, things being taken or um, are untrue spoken or harm, you know, to living things or anxiety around sexuality or clarity with regard to the mind involving intoxicants. These are all the, the, the basic lay precepts that, that we subscribe to on, on retreats and do our best to practice in daily life, not killing, not stealing, uh, and in terms of a retreat, actually abstaining from all sexual activity so the energy can be focused entirely moment to moment on what's happening, you know, rather than acting out on our fantasies, our thoughts, our feelings. And speaking only what is true, you know, aligning with the deepest goal of our practice, the truth. And only taking whatever medications that we may 
need by prescription, you know, not clouding the mind with drugs or alcohol. In addition, I'm going to chant three other precepts that I think 10 or 12 of you are already planning to take. It, it, it essentially, uh, in the most practical sense, is that those of you who take the eight precepts take no other food after the noon meal. Just a strain juices and just allowable um, sweets and whatnot offered in the evening. We'll talk about this more because some of you will become interested in why I do this and what effect does it have on the practice. You know, first and foremost, you might think, won't I be hungry? You know, will I have enough food? Uh, And as we begin to find out, the need for sleep, the need for food begins to diminish as we get fed by our own restfulness, as we get fed by the joys of Dhamma itself, as we feel rested by, by mindfulness. So I would suggest that you, that you just take the five precepts unless you know for sure. Uh, and in the meantime, wait, ask questions, Uh, one of us will say more about what it means and how it supports the practice not to take an evening meal. In Asia, or when the Asian teachers come here, generally everyone follows the eight precepts. There are many exceptions around medical needs and, you know, just physical body uh, needs. So they're not, as with the rest of the precepts, have nothing to do with um, imposed rules of, con- of conduct or, or um, commandments. These are stepping stones. These are psychological guidelines. These help all create the profound atmosphere of, of trust through which we go deeper effortlessly. We'll chant like this. We'll chant together the, um, the beginning, the homage to the blessed, noble, perfectly enlightened one, three times. And then, and then I will, um, line by line, go through the refuges. And you can repeat after me, likewise with the, taking the eight, with the five or eight precepts. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Buddham Sarnangachami Dhammam Sarnangachami Sangam Sarnangachami Dutiampi Buddham Sarnangachami. Dutiampi Buddham Sarnangachami. Dutiampi Dhammam Sarnangachami. Tatiampi Buddham Sarnangachami. Tatiampi Buddham Sarnangachami. Tatiampi 
Satyampi Sangang Sarnang Gachami Anati Pata We Ramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Adinadana We Ramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Abrahmacharya We Ramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Musawada We Ramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Sura Mereya Majapamadatana We Ramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Vikala Bhojana We Ramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Natcha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanatana We Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Ucha Sayana Maha Sayana We Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Actually, when this last January teaching uh, teaching with Saida Ulakana, the abbot of this uh, 14th century monastery, where we have this foreigners center in Upper Burma, um, the staff the, the the staff had a light evening meal, and so we wouldn't chant the after the five precepts. So in the middle of one of these, which we did every day, chant the precepts before Sayadaw gave his talk. And so he kind of stopped at the sixth one and turned to all of us staff, teaching staff and and managers and whatnot, and said, it's good karma. You go go ahead and chant the precepts, even if you're going to eat later. It's still good for you to do. (laughs) So I didn't say that this time, but when we do it in the future... Thank you. So we've been sitting for a while now, so if you need to take a moment to rearrange your limbs, please do so. We'll just have a very short period of sitting as a way of formally entering into this period of silence together. 
So you can begin by taking just a few moments to receive the various sensations in your body at this moment. Settling into this present moment through the awareness of sensations. Simply being aware of the points of contact. Not looking for anything special. As we've been suggesting in the past couple of days, arriving. For a few moments, let your attention move to hearing, to the receptivity of sound. Sound of my voice, other sounds in the room, sounds outside of the room. Tuning into that sense of ease with which sounds are known. And when you're ready, see if you can bring that same very present, very receptive state of awareness to the sensations of your breath. And when the mind wanders, as it will, see if you can remember that this practice is about beginning again.
May the merit of our practice and of all the wholesome actions that have brought us to this moment together be dedicated to the welfare and the liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.